And I was, I was, I was trying to, uh, you know, leaving a store and going to another store. There was a really uh, young, there was a young lady, very bubbly. She came up to me and said, hey, you going to the faith festival, you know, in a, in a month or so? And she slipped me a piece of paper to this thing she wanted me to go to. But before I could slip away, she asked me this question. And she said, um, are you a born-again believer? And so in my mind, I was like, yeah, I'm a born-again believer, and I'm a pastor. And should I tell her all these things? Yeah, I'm a born-again believer, I'm a pastor. And I said, well, uh, I said, yes, but I didn't tell her I was a pastor because I just wanted to kind of see where she was going to go with this conversation, right? I kind of wanted to see what was her witnessing strategy, you know, so to speak. So uh, I said, yes, I, I am. And then her next question was, um, great. So uh, that means that if you're born again, that you've received the Holy Spirit. And I said, yes, I've received the Holy Spirit. That's a good, good question to ask. Uh, I said, yes, I have. And then she said, okay, if you've, uh, you've, that's great. You've been born again. Uh, you've received the Holy Spirit. So then you speak in tongues. And then I was like, that's a weird third question to ask, right? I mean, a good maybe third question might be what church do you go to? Or her second question was the Holy Spirit. And so if you want to ask me a Holy Spirit question, maybe what are my spiritual gifts? Or, or I don't know, something like that. But uh, it just really caught me off guard that um, she asked me, do you speak in tongues? And so my immediate answer was no, I don't. But then I do remember that I actually I have spoken in tongues before. I do speak in tongues. It's very rare. But when I'm really just connected to God, there are times that I have that, that I, have that I do speak in tongues. And so I said no. And then immediately I switched my question and said, yes, actually, actually I do. But then she, she went from this very bubbly personality, like her eyes, then to her eyes began bulging at me and said, look, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. So uh, she didn't realize, again, she was talking to a pastor here, but that's okay. But, um, you know, but she was saying, because if you don't speak in tongues, that means you haven't received the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't received the Holy Spirit, then you aren't saved. Because the scriptures make it really clear that the sign of salvation is the gift of tongues. In the book of Acts, tongues always accompany salvation. And then her face just, you know, was this, you know, I'm going to get you. And then I just slowly backed away and, you know, I left on my way. Now, what struck me also as she was leaving was just the change of countenance because of this one particular issue. What struck me was, because I've seen this face before, it's the same face that I've made when I talk about some of these issues when it comes, these maybe, I don't know, controversial issues that come in the church. What, what struck me was her judgment and self-righteousness that came out on a particular issue that's not even core to central theology in the church. It has nothing to do, you know, tongues has nothing to do with the central dogmas of the scripture uh, of, of God. Trinity, who was the Father, who was the Son, who's the Holy Spirit. There's something that's just so, um, just marginal in a way. And what I've noticed about people who are really passionate about non-core controversial theological issues is that sometimes they link their rightness about this, like they have to be right, and they link that to their own sense of personal worth. And if there's any type of, uh, you know, uh, you could say something bad about Christians, that Christians using religion as a crutch. That would be it. To have to be so right about something in order to gain our righteousness. When the scriptures are really clear, are really clear, that righteousness doesn't come from ourselves. And righteousness does not come from being right either. If anything we should learn from scriptures is that we're all wrong. <laughs> we're all wrong before God. We didn't do it right. 
Our righteousness comes from Jesus, the one who bled and died for us. And that shouldn't produce self-righteousness. If you've got it well and you understand that, it should produce humility. Especially when it comes to these issues that are kind of more marginal and yet maybe controversial. The reason I bring that up is because the passage that we're going to talk about today stirs up a different but a larger, more relevant controversy in the church. Okay? So in this very short time today, I have to take a look at a very controversial passage of Scripture. So I need everyone to turn there in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16, verse 7. Romans chapter 16, verse 7. And all that to say is that I hope that as we go through this, that, you know, no one has a mean face. Like, especially in our culture today, where we're, where we're so divided, even evangelicals are so divided into red evangelicals and blue evangelicals. And if there's anything that the world needs to see today is that red evangelicals and blue evangelicals can, can sit in the same church. Amen? There needs to be that. There needs to be that kind of space. All right? So, uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 7. One of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture. Are we all there? Okay, here it is. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been imprisoned with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. That's it. Pretty controversial, right? Okay, now, let's start, let's dig into the controversy a little bit, okay? Now, in your uh, Bible, next slide, please, how many of you, raise your hand if you have the name Junia, J-U-N-I-A. Your Bible reads Junia. Okay, raise your hand, Lahai. Your Bible reads Junia, okay? All right, now, raise your hand if your Bible reads Junius. Okay, a couple people couple people. Okay. You need to update your Bibles a little bit? No, just kidding. All right. But a couple people of you have, have the name Junius, okay? Now, what the controversy is, okay, is in the name Junia. The name Junia is a woman's name. It is a woman's name. Junia is a woman's name, and it's the only woman in the New Testament who's given this highest title of apostle. What that means is that Junia was a woman in ministry. Uh, woman, Junia was a woman pastor, and she was labeled as an apostolic leader. Okay? Everyone just take a breath for a little bit. All right? Just let that soak in. Now, for most of you, just because I know our congregation, for most of you, this probably isn't a big issue for you. This isn't controversial. At the same time, I understand those who've studied, who've done a fair study of the text and fall on another side that says, well, women shouldn't be in pastoral ministry or certain, uh, certain levels of authority in the church. I respect that, and I understand that. If you've done a good study, an honest study of the word, and that's where you fall, this church is a place for you as well, okay? And there's some of you who are like in the middle of that tension, it's like you studied it, and you still don't know what to believe. I've studied this passage historically. I've looked at 1 Timothy chapter 2. I've looked at 1 Corinthians 14, and I've tried to figure out what are these restrictions that Paul seems to talk about of women in the church. At the same time, there's examples of women freely uh, serving in the church, okay? But we're going to go dive into this and then another passage as well. Let me tell you a little bit about the, the history of this particular passage, okay? Okay. Um, 
Again, this is a passage labeling a woman named Junia who is an apostle, which is the highest office in the early church. A couple of interesting things about this verse. Uh, theologian Professor Elvin J. Epp done research says this, uh, a couple things. Junia was considered a female name in the early church by all church writers without exception. So this is a female name. Two, Greek versions of the scripture continue to spell it out as a female name. Number three, you don't have to write all these things. I was just let you know. Junius, if, if there was a male version of this name, Junius, okay? When you go and look back in the ancient culture in Greece, Junius as a male name did not exist. There were no males named Junius, Junius but there were plenty of females named Junia. Another important one, early translations of Scripture, such as the Vulgate. And now you never heard of this, scripture, this translation before, right? But the Vulgate was around 8200, uh, between 8200 and 400. It's the Latin translation of the Bible. When they translated the Bible into Latin, this name, Junia, was also translated into Latin also as a female name. That's also true for the Sahidic and the Boharic these are Coptic uh, dialects of the Egyptian language. Now, the Coptic manuscripts, okay, these are translations of the Bible into Egyptian language. Those two dialects, the most of the manuscripts are around 9th century. They are also translated as a female name. The earliest they have of these Coptic manuscripts are 4th century, which leads scholars to also think that, well, if they were in the 4th century, then some of these manuscripts could have been around in the 2nd century or the 3rd century. The point is, though, is that they were, this was always translated also. It was understood as a female name. The uh, English translation, the English translation that you guys have, right, um, it read as Junia, as a female name, until the last part of the 1800s, early 20th century, when it was suddenly changed to a male name, Junian or Julian or Junius, or some variation. So the question is, why the change? In other words, the, the, uh, the uh, message for today is, who killed Junia? Who killed her off? Because it was always a female name. But it got changed, and we have evidence that in some of the Bibles here, it's still, it's still seen as a male name. Who killed her off? What happened? Um, I've done a lot of reading. I've done a lot of study of this, not only just for this particular sermon today, but in previous uh, a few other times when I've talked about or have had to study this particular uh, passage and other passages like 1 Timothy, which we're going to get to today. But um, when I've studied this and read other theologians and other books too, there's no good reason for why the change was made. Um, There's two examples, let me give you, of why it was uh, why change, and, and they're not good reasons. They don't reflect well uh, on the church. But there's a guy named J.B. Lightfoot, and if, if you've done any kind of uh, uh, studies, uh, deeper studies in scriptures, J.B. Lightfoot was a late uh, 19th, early 20th century English um, pastor and theologian, prolific in, in his writing. I've, I've read a lot of his, his, uh, his, his commentaries. Uh, but he wrote in his notes on this particular text, uh, he said for Romans 16, 7, for Junia, that Junia must be Junius, okay? Junia must be Junius or male 
Because Paul called him, her, him or her an apostle, and only men can be apostles. Okay? So his thought, his understanding, and we just have to have a little bit of grace. Can we all have grace? Amen? Okay? Let's just have grace for people in the times that they lived in. All right? Just like we have grace for people in times, for us in the times that we lived in. Okay? So what's happening is that from his own cultural construct, his own cultural construct was that it's not possible that women could have been in leadership. Therefore, if women could not be, have the highest possible place of leadership, then that name could not possibly be female. It has to be male. Those are just notes that he made. Okay? So that's, that's one reason why it got changed. Another reason. Uh, interpreters, we know that it began to change in Europe among the German scholars, talking about the Reformation. Interpreters from the 13th to the late 20th century, they also favored a masculine genius, and that's when it changed for them, because they couldn't imagine a woman apostle. So, of course, Martin Luther, Martin Luther, great guy. I mean, leader of the Reformation, all right? But he had some questionable views on women as well. Just for example, uh, when once asked the question, uh, why are girls, why do girls mature more quickly than boys? I mean, even back then they knew that girls matured more quickly than boys, right? His answer was this, weeds grow faster than roses. That's what he said, okay? Don't hate on Martin Luther, all right? Okay, we, you know, the Reformation in some ways is still continuing because of, because of him, all right? But uh, this is, we're asking this question, who killed Junia? And it's tough. You cannot pass by this question. You, you have to, there's, there is some misogyny in culture. There's some misogyny throughout, since the beginning of time, so since the fall. And it's infiltrated us. It's just sinfulness in us. And, and there's no doubt, there's streams of misogyny that's infiltrated, whether it's the mainline church or it's conservative church, it's, it's there. It's there. That's what killed off Junia. This is another reason, and this is a good example of why I just am, am, I am very careful using that phrase, biblical worldview. People say, what is the biblical, what is the biblical stance? What is the biblical worldview? And say, well, I believe, the, I believe in, in some, you're debating with someone, and they'll bring out, well, I believe the biblical worldview, or I follow the Bible. But this is a really good example of where the biblical worldview has shifted and changed over time, depending on what culture you're in. Because if you want to conform to the biblical worldview, well, if you lived in the early 20th century, let's say before women had the right to vote, if you and, and evangelical and conservative churches did not want women to have the right to vote, if you lived in that time, they would have told you, well, the biblical worldview for women then is don't pour too much into their education. Don't expect them to get too far ahead in their world. Don't ask them what their hopes and dreams are. The home is their primary domain and do not give them the right to vote. That would have been the biblical worldview of the early 20th century. That's why I don't like to use that term. I use it very carefully. Because in order to understand a biblical worldview, you have to see an interpretation over the history of the church, not just one slice, because it can change. So 
In your Bible study, the reason why the overwhelming majority of you raised your hand is because the overwhelming scholarship, especially in our English translations, has come back in saying it is a woman. We understand that. It is overwhelming evidence. It is a woman apostle. Her and her husband, Andronicus, likely, it may, it may not have been her husband, but sometimes you know, that's what they would do. They'd pair these names together. Andronicus was a, fem- uh, a male name. Andronicus and Junia, like Paul, they suffered for the gospel. It says that they spent time in jail, whether it was apart or together, I don't know. But I want you to think about this. Paul says that these two leaders, and this particular this woman, they were outstanding among the apostles. I don't know about you, but uh, for me, when I read scripture, when I first uh, began reading scripture in, in college, my first ex- being exposed to the Bible and getting to the words of Paul, Romans immediately was my favorite book in the New Testament. Paul was my favorite Bible character, so to speak. He was outstanding. He is the, uh, you know, he is the, the model missionary for us, the greatest missionary, perhaps, in, in all of history. He's the one that I think is exceptional among all the apostles. And yet Paul in his apostolic experience, in his apostolic authority, he says that Andronicus and this woman, Junia, they are the exception among all the apostles. That's pretty amazing for Paul to give that kind kind of praise. Now, and so Junia was like a female version of Paul. Now, the question is, for a lot of us, for those of you who have maybe some, done some cursory study or maybe gone a little bit deep or, or feel that tension, it, it, the question is this. How do we harmonize the empowering of women in Scripture, in leadership, and in this particular case, this woman being labeled as an apostle? How do we harmonize that with Scriptures like 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, both written by Paul as well, that have heavy restrictions on women in ministry. At least they appear to have that. So you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. Um, 1 Corinthians 14, also written by Paul, the, the wording is almost identical. Okay, But this is the passage that scholars and, and pastors and theologians may, may come to, will read and say, this is the reason why women should not have authority in the church or has very limited authority in the church. Okay, and Paul wrote this. So how do we harmonize all this? A woman apostle, and yet the words we're about to read, starting 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, says this. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Wow. So this is the pivotal verse used to argue against women in pastoral leadership and also a complementarian uh, view. Now, when you read it, when you read it, it just reads really clearly. Okay, when you read that, it just sounds clear. Women shouldn't teach. Women shouldn't have authority over, over men. Women should just be quiet, need to be quiet and submissive. Okay, so I understand if you just say, well, that's just the plain reading of the text. That's the biblical worldview that Paul is um, 
uh, moving forth, forthwith, okay? But what we want to do, and I've taught this many, many times in our cohorts, and I've taught this many, many times here when we, when we learn and when we try to understand Scripture, what do we always look at? We always look at the context, right? Context. You got to go deeper into context. There's all different kinds of context. So let's look at the very simple, the simplest context for this particular verse. Let's just look at the verses before this verse, okay? So let's just do that. That's, that's, we could just start there. They're very basic. What are the verses that are before these uh, controversial verses? Well, that would be, go to verse 8, therefore, right? Uh, starts off, that is a word that usually starts off a new section. Paul says, therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but to adorn themselves with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So, the question is, is that verses 11 through 15, if we're to take them literally, and that they're transcultural, means they apply to every generation, every time, no matter what's happening, okay, then the context is beginning at verse 8. And in Greek, there is no, there are no paragraph divisions. Does that make sense? Those are man-made so that we can try to follow the logic a little bit better. But if you were to read and look at the Greek manuscript, from 8 through 15 is just one continuous writing, sentences. There is no break, okay? So Paul's actually starting from here, talking about some issues, talking about some, some ways, so to speak, of, of how we're supposed to conduct, how men and women are supposed to conduct themselves, okay? So if we were to say that verses 11 through 15 that a woman needs to learn in quiet and submission, that women shouldn't have authority to teach over man. If that is t- timeless and that is appropriate for all generations at all times, then verse 8, the question is, so men, when we prayed today, did you lift up holy hands when you prayed? Because this is all coming together. Woman, today, is your dress modest? Woman, are there any women here? Are you wearing gold or pearls? Do you have any gold on your fingers? Do you have a diamond ring on your finger that your significant other spent two months of their salary? I mean, that's not very modest, okay? Don't bring those rings. Don't bring that kind of stuff to church, okay? Now, I'm being funny here, but, you know, uh, are, are you wearing, is anyone here, women, are you wearing expensive clothes? All your clothes should come from Walmart. Okay, no Nordstrom's here because that's really expensive, right? Women, elaborate hairstyles. Do any of you have braids? Do any of you put your hair up? Did any of you get highlights this past weekend? (laughs) Because if this is God's word to us for all time, then this is what we're supposed to be applying to and supposed to be obeying. Now, why you got to ask yourself this question just just why is paul who wrote this letter to timothy goes at the ephesian church why is he so into a way a woman dresses and presents herself 
right? Why does, with all the social injustice and all the things that are going on in the world and there's bigger fish to fry, why does he spend so much time being so detailed about a way a woman presents himself? And why, if verse 11 is restrictive to women's roles for all time and argued as authoritative for today as a plain reading of the text, then why don't we follow verses 8 through 10? Why are we not obeying those either? What do we do? We have to go back into context. Context, context, context. Let's look at the historical context. Historical context, 1 Timothy is a letter from Paul to his disciple Timothy. Paul is on his second missionary uh, journey, and when he goes back to the church in Ephesus, a church that he helped to build up, the church is just gone, church gone wild, all right? And there is these false teachers who have taken over. What he does is he installs Timothy, he says, I'm taking over because I'm an apostle. And when you're a, an apostle, you had this type of authority in churches. He says, I'm removing this leadership, and I'm installing Timothy to now be your new pastor. It's a person coming in from the outside and saying, yeah, remove Pastor Roy. There's a new guy because he's teaching weird stuff, and so there's a new guy coming in. That's the kind of authority that the apostles had, the kind of authority that Junia had and Andronicus had, and they were exceptional among the apostles. And so Paul comes in and says, the teachings got really messed up. I'm installing Timothy, my young disciple, because he's got it way better. And then what you can see is that when you read the rest of, of Timothy, you can see that the false teachers, they particularly preyed upon and manipulated women in the congregation. Some women were taking on these outspoken roles. Paul talks in chapter 5 about older and younger widows in the congregation, how they need to be married off because how they, some of them need to think about being married because of their desire for affection and intimacy. He's saying that some of the men are preying upon that, manipulating them. Okay, that's a historical context. What's the cultural context? Cultural context is this. Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor, and it was home to the goddess Artemis, or Diana. So there's a huge temple, one of the largest temples in the, in the Mediterranean there, um, dedicated to the goddess uh, Artemis, Diana. Now, what went on in these temples? These temples were kind of like the, the town hall, the, you know, the, the mayor's office, you know, the city center, so to speak. And the temples, it's hard for us to really understand what it was like. It, but here, here are the three main things of what, the, what happened at the temples. Number one is that the temples, they acted like civic centers, places where business, places where government decisions were made. So it's an important space. They were also worship centers, obviously, because it's dedicated to Diana. But they also served as brothels. Okay? That's why it's really hard for us to get it, to capture our minds around this, like what these temples were there for. It was all of this kind of all together civic center, worship center, and brothels. <laughs> okay? The ancient city of Corinth, if you've ever done any kind of study like this, was especially known because it had a thousand prostitutes of Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty and love, that would descend on the city every night gathering financial support for the temple. Okay? That's what happened. Now, Rick Streelan, in his book called, uh, called Paul, Artemis, and the Jews in Ephesus, he writes this about women's roles in pagan cults. And he quotes from various scholars. He says this, he says, in terms of cultic life in Ephesus, 
It is clear that women played a significant role and held important offices in many cults. The mythology of Ephesus, this is 1 Timothy now, the mythology of Ephesus, including the myth that Ephesus was founded by warrior women known as Amazons. This is where Wonder Woman came from, right? The mythology of Ephesus, all these Wonder Women there, they're amazing, bolstered their status in the Artemis cult. Cultic activity for women was more prominent in Asia Minor than anywhere else, and many served as priestesses and high priests. Okay? Now, think about this. If you're a young church in a city dominated by a temple cult led by women who wore a lot of gold jewelry, who wore a lot of pearl jewelry, expensive clothes, they would put their hair in elaborate hairstyles, and they regularly prostituted themselves. What kind of instructions would you give to this radical new community, this new humanity where there was neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, neither slave or free, this equalizing, radical, Christ-following community? What kind of instruction would you give them? You would give them exactly the instructions that Paul gave them. Look, we need to differentiate ourselves, Paul is saying. The church of Christ is a new humanity. It is not a replication of the temple cult. We don't have our women dressed up like the temple woman because those women are prostitutes. And in the new humanity, women are not valued by what they can gain from their body, but their values in their hearts and their minds given over to Jesus. That's why he says in verse 11, let the women learn. Not I don't prohibit any woman. He says, let the women learn. Let them, uh, let them understand. Let them under- teach them, you know, the, uh, uh, the scriptures. Let them learn. Teach them that they should learn in quietness and submission to God, just like men should learn in quietness and submission to God. And then in verse 12, it's very important. The term translated to have authority, it's a very interesting word, often, ta- often, often teen, occurs only here in the New Testament, was rarely used in the Greek language. It's not the usual word for authority. This particular word is a negative term of authority. It refers to an usurping of authority, an abuse of authority. So he's saying, he's looking at women, he's saying, there's women that are abusing authority. That's what it's referring to. He's saying, we, as women, we shouldn't, they shouldn't be doing that. And so think about this. As women led the cult, the temple, the temple cult, right? If you put a man in a lot of power, that's what happens when you have Me Too comes out, right? If you put women in a lot of power, there's something else that there could also be an abuse of power. It doesn't matter. It's just sinfulness. Men and women, you put them in places of power, of a lot of power and influence, anyone can be susceptible to abusing that power. And so as women led the temple cult, could they, be, they could abuse their authority over both men and women. So it's against this backdrop that Paul gives wise instruction about how the church can be the church and how the church can differentiate itself from the culture, not because it's different, not because we want to be different, but we want to give a new value to woman, 
a new relationship with the, between the genders, to be real salt and light, and to be a corrective against the social injustice of that culture. That said, a woman's great, one of her greatest values is the financial gain that she can get through her body. So Paul's talking about saying, look, let there be dignity and equality. So let women be like men and learn in submission to the Lord. Women should not have hyper-authority over men, and men shouldn't have hyper-authority over women. When you read these verses, understanding this proper context, these verses, then, you understand are about equality. They're not about hierarchy. And the specific instructions on how to achieve that equality are cultural directives for that city and for that time. Because today, it's okay to color your hair. It's okay to have highlights. Today, it's okay to wear jewelry, gold rings, wedding rings with a diamond, to have pearls. It's okay to wear Nordstrom's to church, okay? The reason why all those things are okay, why are all those things okay? Because no one associates gold rings, nice clothes, or a nice hairdo with prostitution. Nobody associates those things with prostitution anymore. That's why this whole section was for that particular time, that particular culture of how they could be salt and light in that particular city, in that particular context. So what, 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 what remains? What's the timeless truth that Paul's getting at here? The timeless and transcultural instruction is mutuality, mutual dignity, mutual respect, mutual edification, mutuality, equality between the sexes. And this is something that, that churches have, have you know, I, just full disclosure here, I come from a pretty conservative background. Uh, I came to Christ in a Korean Southern Baptist Church, right? We're pretty hardcore. You add that Korean in there, and just it's a whole, it's a whole new thing, okay? And, um, but we even had some, some interesting issues because uh, the church that I, again, was in college that I started attending church, it was a small church, maybe 15 to 20 people. And uh, with that, you couldn't really hire an English pastor, all right? And so what would happen is that the pastor's wife would always preach on Sunday morning. Now, again, this is a very conservative church, but she would always come up, and Angel was there, you know, and, and she would always come up. And the first thing she would say is she would just have to apologize and say, um, you know, women aren't really supposed to preach in, in, in church. And so I just want you to know that I'm not preaching. I'm just teaching, okay? And then she would open the Bible, and then she'd start, like, preaching at us, right? You know, with this, like, authority and everything. I'm like, that, you know? But, and then, so it was kind of confusing. Like, so what's the difference then, you know? You're telling us you're not supposed to be here, but you're here anyway, and you're not calling it preaching. You're calling it teaching. You, you just labeled something, but you're still preserving the same function. And then I went to Southwestern Seminary, Again, part of the Southern Baptist Conservative Seminary. And I remember something even weird. I mean, that was weird at church, right? But then Southern Baptists, they did something really weird, okay? Uh, I remember going to chapel, and we would have chapel every single day. And one day, we had a woman speaker. I have no idea how they allowed her to be up there, but, it, you know, they, they allowed her to be up there. 
And this is what she did. She said, so, I can't remember. She said something similar. You know, I'm not, you know, teaching for something. Like that. And all she did was she, she never stood behind the pulpit. So all she did in order to be in line with, like, biblical theology, biblical worldview, biblical teaching at the time is that this behind the pulpit is preaching. This is not. I'm good here. I'm safe. I'm in the will of God. Just one step away. Um, we're kind of funny. We're, we're kind of funny, aren't we, as humans? Uh, we're kind of funny when it comes to theology and we're like we just need to be really right, this narrow pathway of God and just, and just really there. there. And it's, when we do these things, and it's really hard for us to call things strange or foolish or... You know, but again, people have right minds. They're, 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 trying, to do, they're trying to do their best. They're, they're, they're trying to do the best in, in understanding. What's really important here is to understand this particular, because this particular passage of 1 Timothy is the main passage that those who I respect, who I respect will say, well, the plain reading of the text is that this is a transcultural absolute prohibition against women teaching in church. Now, one last point before I summarize. Um, with respect, okay? If you agree, if you believe that 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, if you believe that they are a transcultural, absolute for all time prohibition on women teaching and exercising authority in the church, if you believe that's true, then the way that you're interpreting scripture, that I understand, you're going to come to the conclusion that this, that then the Bible is restricting all, is, is, is prohibiting all activity of women to do this, not just in the church. See, if women aren't qualified to teach or exercise authority in the church, then how are they qualified to lead outside of the church? If a woman's best role and her authority and her domain are really in the household, then how can she have that any, any hope of authority or domain outside of the household? Does that make sense? Because this scripture passage, you just read it, is not just saying pastors, women pastors aren't supposed to teach. That, that's not, it's, it's broad. It's just saying women in general don't have that kind of authority. And if women shouldn't have that authority in the church, what gives a woman a right to have that authority outside of the church? That's the difficulty with that particular type of interpretation. Because if you believe that, then women should not be teachers or professors or counselors or managers or business leaders or doctors or lawyers or engineers. That's not scripture one I understand. And when you read the Bible, especially the role of women, children, and slaves, there is a progressive, redemptive, elevating quality and dignity and freeing of those historically marginalized groups. Okay, so I need to come to conclusion and land this plane, all right? At SCAC, I just want to be clear about what we believe as a church and also together as a denomination of where we stand on the issue of women in ministry. Um, number one, you don't have to write all these things down, but women and men are equally called and equally gifted to serve the body of Christ. That's where we stand as a church. That's where we stand as a domination. Women and men are equally called, equally gifted to serve the body of Christ. Second, the local church's role is to empower both men and women to serve any role in which God calls them. If you have a God is having a call on your life, whether it's in the church, outside the church, nonprofit, whatever it might be, the local church's role is to empower 
you, both men and today, especially women, to serve any role in which you feel God is calling you. Qualified and trained men, women, and men have authority to teach other men and women. That's what we practice. That's what we believe here. That qualified and trained women and men have authority to teach other men and women. All right? Men and women have authority to serve the local church on leadership boards. Men and women have authority to serve the local church on leadership boards, governance, polity. Now, as part of the Alliance, uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance, there is one limitation, all right, in our denomination. The only limitation for women is in the pastoral role of senior pastor. So in our denomination, women are allowed to be pastors. They can have any role as pastor except for that of the senior pastor. And um, it was funny because I had a conversation with, with Alyssa here. Hi, Alyssa. Yeah. And so Alyssa, and, and uh, I told her about that limitation. She said, I would not want to be a senior pastor, but I would like the option of being, the senior, of being a senior pastor, right? Okay, I get it. Now, okay, there's a hand clap over there. Now, here's just some interesting things about, just funny things about denominations, about religious institutions, okay? Is this is, what I described there was the, that limitation is the Alliance United States. The Alliance is actually bigger outside of the U.S., what many, many times over than in the U.S. If you just go 200 miles north into uh, uh, Richmond or you go to Vancouver, okay, go to Canada, all right, there women are allowed to be ordained. This is the alliance. This is the same denomination, okay? So, you know, am I standing over here or am I standing over here? That, that's what's going on. So in the alliance Canada, women can actually be ordained and be senior pastors. You go to Hong Kong, Right? A lot of you guys, background there. Alliance Hong Kong, same thing. Women can be ordained. They can be pastors. Interesting enough, there was a woman who spoke and preached last week. Everyone remember her? Everyone remember her? Right? She was the senior pastor of Salem Chinese Alliance Church for two years. That was in the United States. That was in our district. Okay? That was allowed. All right? So there's a lot of just grace. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot of movement, a lot of exception for the way that God is moving. And that's just, that's just a little bit of a flavor of our alliance district, okay, and our, our, our denomination. So with that, let me just make a couple things clear again. I want to make it really clear that um, every woman here uh, can be trained and equipped to serve God without prejudice. That's my heart. That's our leader's heart. Every woman here can be trained and equipped to serve God without prejudice. That's why uh, maybe it was about eight years ago, um, Ellie Fung, a lot of you know Ellie, uh, Pastor Ellie, uh, she was our first female uh, pastor. She was our children's pastor. Uh, she had a seminary education degree. We hired her, um, the governing board together, really appreciate our governing board, decided together, voted together unanimously to give her the title of pastor. That's why we have women uh, who serve as deacons on both the Chinese and English ministry deacon boards. That's important for us. And so, like Paul, what we have to do with verse Romans 16, 7 and 1 Timothy 2 is what we can get out of this, what we, the application is Paul had to give cultural correction to the Ephesian church. 
we, we are in a bicultural situation. Okay, a lot of you here grew up in immigrant homes. Maybe some of you speak the language, okay? But we're, we're kind of, we, we straddle both East, Eastern and Western culture. And so, just really simply, for the Western culture, right, women need to just hear this, is that, right, you're not defined by how pretty you can make yourself or how cute or stereotypically feminine one is. That instead, as a woman, that your inherent value is in your God-given dignity and humanity, just like everyone else. That's from the Western culture. From, from the Eastern culture, this is really important, is that women are not, you're not defined by your marital status. Singleness is not a curse. And women are not defined by the ability to have children or to produce a male son. You're defined by what you do with your God-given, your personality, your values, your intelligence, and passion to follow God's call on your life, just like, just like everyone else, just like everyone else. And so if you could, would you bow your heads with me? And what I want to do in, in this moment, um, something for both men and women, I, I would say this is that for, for men, I, I think men really do, for the men in here, really need to take a look at their unspoken ways that they may value or devalue or objectify or the opposite sex. We really have to take a look at that. Uh, obviously, there's no room for misogyny. We don't want to objectify people. But do we, do we really value our sisters as equal partners, equal servants in the kingdom of God? Do we treat them that way? Do we see them that way? And I think for women, too, I think women, I think it's harder <laughs> in our culture sometimes uh, because of the objectification, because of the power structures and the, the patriarchy that does exist, that can exist. For women to find their greatest and their deepest value as a daughter of Christ, and they are defined not by what some other says or their opinion or how they look or how they dress or what role they're supposed to play or their marital status or they didn't have a child or they, they don't have a son yet. But your worth and value is defined by who God created you to be with your personality, your values, your intelligence and passion to follow God's call on your life. And God has a dream. God has purposes and plans for you, not just your husband. And that you as a person, as a female, that your destiny is not intricately tied up or must be tied up in what a male thinks about you. But that you're free to live and follow and pursue God's call on your life. Lord God, thank you for this moment today. Thank you for your word and your scriptures that just uh, ring true. 
And I pray, Father, that this continues to be a space where we can have differing views and differing understandings even of Scripture. But as we've taught here today, in my best and most honest research as well and understanding of Scripture and who you are, God, that you created women, men and women equal. And I know we're different in our genders, but the difference in roles is a lot more free than maybe some of us has, has, have understood it. And so I just pray in Jesus' name that all the women in this place would just feel a sense of release, just feel a sense of freedom, that they can serve in any role here at SCAC as God is leading them. And that we as a church community would support uh, our men, and especially today as we're talking about women, but especially expect a lot of our women as we expect a lot of our men as well. That woman who, God, you have gifted to have the teaching of, uh, the gift of teaching or preaching or apostolic, uh, apostle or shepherd, uh, worship leader, um, teacher, counselor, whatever it might be, God, you don't limit, you don't limit how you gift women. And so I just pray that all women here at Father's Day would just send that sense of empowerment and knowing that at this church, at this place, they are free to serve you freely and with encouragement. So, Lord, we thank you, Father, for today, for the new community and the new humanity that you are constantly creating in your church and in your people. And may we continue to say yes and amen to the ways you're redeeming your church. In Christ's name we all pray. Amen. Amen.